Are we on? Yes? Yes. All right. Fantastic. Well, good morning. I hope, uh, hope you had a great weekend. Uh, we had a great weekend at our house. A lot, of, uh, a lot of fun times yesterday. We got to redo our garage. Nothing quite as fun as redoing your garage. I have so many splinters in my hands. If I touch this iPad, I may cry. You may hear whimpering throughout the service. Well, I had to break this sermon into two parts. Um, it had to be broken into two parts because it's too important of a sermon to try and rush through. But what's beautiful about this sermon is that it has a real implication for what we're going to be celebrating next week. And that is namely the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is essential that every Christian understand that what we are saying, what the historical faith of Christianity has said for over 2,000 years, is not merely some esoteric belief in a figurative resurrection, but a literal belief in a historical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. This past week on Thursday evening, I had the privilege of preaching Sandra White's funeral. She was a believer. And I wanted to emphasize to everyone there the belief that we have is a hope in the resurrection, a real bodily resurrection. And that's why we have church every Sunday. It is to celebrate the resurrection. It is to celebrate that in this life, though we are certain, we are on a certain track with death, those who have accepted Christ and have relied on Him and His work on the cross as their only means to salvation will be saved and they will not just simply go off into the sweet by and by, but that they will be raised to life. Christianity is historical, and it has real meaning for us in the future. This morning we're going to talk about the third part of our four types of evidence for creation, and that is life. Life. Let's look at what we mean when we say life. When we use the word life, we're referring to or what is called the study of biology. And that is the study of all living things. Bacteria, plants, and animals are all examples of life. There are three animal kingdoms. A bacteria kingdom, a plant kingdom, and an animal kingdom. And I understand I'm not using the Latin there, but... I don't know it. So, just suffice with bacteria, plants, and animals. These living things are known as organisms. They're known as organisms. And an organism is a carbon-based molecule that has formed into a cell. These cells are the essential, have the essential function of converting nutrients from food into usable energy... And to contain the genetic information for a given organism. Now understand that this is different than the way that rocks and dirt behave. The way that wind behaves. 
Even plants take in the energy that comes to them from the sun, and they take in water, and the cells in the plants are taking that, and they are using the energy that is coming from that food. They are reproducing that, and that turns into a bigger life cycle. Animals do the same thing. All animals, they are eating food. They are digesting that food. Their cells are taking the nutrients. The cells are continuously duplicating themselves with uh, chromosomal uh, genes that are duplicating the same over and over uh, genetic code in that species to keep spiders spiders, to keep human beings human beings. We're talking about something that begins and ends. Something that can feel pleasure and pain. We're talking about life. And the Bible tells us that life ultimately finds its origin in God. If you have your Bibles, turn in them to Genesis 1. We were there last week, but that's okay. The very first verse of the Bible answers the question, where did everything come from? Not just, in, not just organic life, but inorganic life. In fact, organic life is made up of inorganic carbon. All life is carbon-based. But that carbon becomes life... When God begins to use it and form it in such a way that organisms have a beginning and an end. Look at what the very verse, verse says. It says, in the beginning, whenever the beginning was, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was over, hovering over the face of the waters. It's important to understand that God creates and then God designs. So that everything has its origin ultimately from God. The very dirt that he uses to form man from, God creates. But then the Bible gives us a process. And I don't want to get too much into the debate about what type of literature this particular passage is. There's a, a lot to debate on this. Some would say... Uh, some who are of the more liberal theological uh, mind would say that this is mythology. The word mythology, though, doesn't mean what we think it means. Mythology doesn't always mean a fairy tale. That's not what mythology means in academic circles. And so I don't really want to get into the type of genre this is. But suffice it to say, without getting into that complex idea of the genre, let's just simply see if we can understand what the author of Genesis, Moses, is trying to tell us about God's relationship with creation. Okay? That's all we're going to look at today. Verse 3. And God said, let there be... Light, And there was light. And God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. 
And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. So the the idea of atmosphere. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and, uh, excuse me, let me, let me go to verse 9. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas and God saw that it was good. So on day two, God has separated the, the expanse of the atmosphere water from the waters below and now he's separating land from the waters. Verse 11, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. Very important phrase. On earth, and it was so. The earth brought brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, And trees bearing fruit in their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. So one of the things that we do when we're trying to uncover what the meaning of a biblical passage is, is we look for key themes. And those key themes are often those themes that are constantly repeated in the text. And the theme that stands out is kind after its own kind. Now notice that on the first two days, God has, or on day two and day three, God is in the act of separating things. Putting things in their specific system. They are to be separate. They are to have markers, identity markers that separate one thing from another. This is a key component to this passage. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let the lights, uh, let them be lights in the, sorry, and let them be made the two great lights, excuse me. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights. The greater light to rule the day and the lesser night to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. To rule over the day, over the night and to separate the light from darkness. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. So now God has separated day from night. Kind according to their kind. The sun governs the day The moon and the stars govern the night. Day five. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. And let birds fill above, or let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds. 
and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. So now God has created swarms of fish in the ocean, and he has uh, created swarms of birds in the air. Notice, by the by, birds and fish have some similar traits. They, they, they have a very similar uh, way of protecting themselves against predators. They will get into these schools and they will say, the, they, the one, what they try and do is protect the, the overall amount of the species by a bulk of them getting together. So when a when, when there are a, a school of smaller fish and a swordfish comes along, they school up into balls. And those swordfish will try and disrupt that so that they can eat them. Or the marlins will do the same thing. Same thing with birds, uh, you know, finches and such. They will fly in these schools and you'll see them move in beautiful patterns. And they're usually trying to protect themselves from a predator like a hawk or an eagle or bats. God has an idea of separating those two. They're separate. And we can see that they're different. And then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so, and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And the livestock according to their kinds. And everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. According to kinds. Now one other feature that God gives to his creatures. His fish, his plants, or his plants, his fish, his birds, his animals, his creeping things. Is that they now have the ability to make more. Be fruitful and multiply. And in that phrase, there is the expectation of diversity. Acts 17 tells us that that was God's intended purpose. That he made from one man all nations, all diversity. Ultimately, black and white and Asian and Indian all have their origins in one man and one woman, Adam and Eve. This is what scripture is telling us. This is what God intended. That God would put people all over the globe that they may feel their way towards him. So that red, yellow, black and white are all saved by one man, the man Christ Jesus. We came from Adam. We received death from Adam. We will receive life in Christ. And red, yellow, black, and white are all saved the same way. And then God made human beings on the sixth day. You know, one thing that when you're watching uh, National Geographic and there's a show on about biology, they love to make the comparisons between animals and humans... And usually that's done to sort of argue for common descent. But I want you to see something. 
God is saying something about human beings and mammals. There is, listen to me, there is a relationship between the two. For they're made on the same day. Now they are formed directly from the dust, but not from one another. Kind produces its own kind. But the crowning glory of man is this. And God said, let us make man in our image. After our likeness. And then let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. And over the birds of the heavens. And over the livestock. And over all the earth. And over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. That human beings are to be the chief creation of God. Is what scripture tells us. Why? Where does our dignity come from? Does it come from the fact that we are creations? No, there are other animals that were created. Well, does it come from the fact that we can think? No, it comes from the fact that we bear God's image. Theologians have speculated as to what that means. What does it mean to have God's image? I think it means a couple things. I think, number one, it means that we are aware, aware of ourselves and of others. I think it means to be other-directed. I think it means to be worshipful. We are all created to worship God. Someone said to me recently, the idea of God is not self Uh, It is not a self-intuitive idea. I disagree. There is no culture on planet earth that is atheistic or that starts out atheistic. Human beings are incurably worshipful and religious. I think it means to be thinkers, to be aware of God, to be aware of others. And I think it means to be morally culpable. To be responsible for our actions. And not just our actions to other people, but our actions to God. I think that's what it means to be created in God's image. A covenant relationship. Because from there on, God, every time he involves himself with human beings, he binds himself in covenant relationship. In fact, we know that from the Bible, as Scripture has told us, let us make man in our image that God is an eternal community and that God's ever act, His eternal act, is the Father giving all glory to the Son, the Son submitting to the will of the Father, and the Spirit pointing all men to the Son, that God is the type of person who exists in community, who is good and gives for others, and who is morally responsible. We're created in that image to love God and to love others. We are not created. We are not created to live unto ourselves. God has made that point very beautifully in saying this much You will produce offspring with two, the two will become one flesh in offspring. We've got this beautiful little, we've got three beautiful children, and I know, I, I know it's annoying to hear me talk about my children all the time, but I don't care. Um, this beautiful little baby 
She's so cute. And it, sometimes she looks like Stephanie, and other times she looks like me. She looks like me when, you know, she, she looks like me when she's like. <laughs> and she looks like Stephanie when she's like. And that's the difference. And we can just, you can see that they look like both of us. There is this beauty that God is trying to say. Man will be crowned with this glory. He will bear my image. Well, there's three things then that we can say. Just three general things. And again, I can't get too specific. For those of you who want me to delve deeper, uh, buy me lunch later on in the week and we'll delve deeper. But I want to just take these three general statements, these three points from the passage. Number one, the source of life is God. His name is Yahweh. He revealed himself to Moses in a burning bush. He revealed his law to Moses on Mount Sinai. He made the people of Israel, not Egypt, not Assyria, not Mesopotamia. He made the people of Israel his people. And through that special nation, he would one day reveal the most glorious expression of himself in the person of Jesus Christ. When scripture says that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, this was a Trinitarian act and it was moving towards the one single person, Jesus Christ. So that we can say very firmly, this life is no accident. The purpose of life is to glorify God. What does it mean to glorify God? It means to reflect his character. How do you know that? Because we were created in his image. And when you're not reflecting his image, you are not, you are not living up to your purpose as a human being. Number two. This tells us that the, the means of life is God's word. It is not an evolutionary process. It is God's divine, sovereign speech. God is a speaking God. We know that because he wrote his word. And we also know that because we're made in his image. And we are speaking beings. We are reasoning beings, homo sapiens. We are reasoning, we are thinking beings, just like God. So God is the source. He is the means so that nothing, nothing, nothing was made without him giving it life and authority to exist by himself. You will be made. He makes it. And gives it the power to make more offspring. God is the author of life. His word is the means by which all things are made. And the final result of life is that it is good. So that in everything. In everything in nature. We may use the word good. As it rightly, rightly reflects God's intention in creation. 
What is good after all? What is good without God? It is nothing but a social construct without God. God not just, he doesn't just make human beings, he doesn't just make nature, but he says it's also good. So that if we are to approve of things in this world, if we are to approve of what is right, it must correspond with the creator's intention. Scripture has a neat way of helping us remember these days. Day one, God creates light. Day four, God creates the illuminaries, those things that will house light. And there is a difference between the two. Uh, light is believed to be a particle, a photon. Could also be a wave. Day two, God creates an expanse of water, uh, uh, an expanse in the heavens and an expanse in the ocean. And then in day five, he puts birds up in the heavens and in, in the sky. And on day five, he puts fish in the ocean. And then in day three, he makes plants and dry land. And on day six, he makes land animals and those who will live off the land. A very easy way to remember what God is doing. And because of this, this kind of a, a memorable way of God uh, directing or creating the, the uh, uh, excuse me, the way that Moses tells the story, it leaves open the possibility that Moses' intention may be, and I believe it is, much more than simply giving you a literal beginning to the origins. I do believe that he means to say God created literally this way. But notice that the organization is very neat for us to remember. From there, though, God says a little bit more about it. God will rule over all creation, but man will rule over God's creation. Man's role will be to subdue the earth. He will be the one who is responsible for what God has made. He will be the one who does right and does good on earth with God's creation. We have a responsibility to creation. We have a responsibility, and some of you are hearing me say be an environmentalist. I'm not saying be an environmentalist insofar as a, a worldview is concerned, but absolutely you should care for the earth. These countries that go through deforesta uh, deforestation, it's an example of not subduing the earth. It's an example of being selfish with what God has given you and not making, leaving some for others. These one or two power men or women who have money who buy up all the land are being selfish. They're not allowing that land to be used for others. When John Locke wrote the, the three main parts of, well, what we have embraced, the three main parts of American ideology, life, liberty, and the pursuit of, he didn't say uh, uh, happiness, he said the pursuit of property. And when he said that, he said, just enough for your uses. And John Locke was a Calvinist, a Christian, and he believed that man had a responsibility to be fair with nature and to do right by nature. And so scripture tells us that this is God's doing. 
And then there came Darwinism. The essential thesis of Darwinism today is this. All of life is the result of natural selection acting upon random mutations rather than a creation of God. That has great and grave consequences for everything we know. There is a reason why the Bible begins with a story of where we came from. The story of who our creator is. It is not merely to give us a beginning point. It is to give us an understanding of why we're here, where we came from, and how we are to live in this world. And when Darwin comes along and removes, tries to remove the creator from the creation, meaning, purpose, life, and morality are now thrown to the wind. Someone say, are you saying then that atheists aren't good people? Absolutely not. I believe that an atheist can be good without believing in God. But an atheist can't be good without God. There's no sense in even using a word like good if there is no God. Because it was God who first gave us the word and the very meaning of the word. Good is equal to God's creative order. And if he isn't the creator, there is no good. Well, who is this guy? What is Darwinism? And I don't mean to pick on Mr. Darwin, by the way. We don't do well, Christians, when we call his theory of evolution stupid. It was anything but stupid. Diabolical? Yes. Whether that was intentional or not, I'll leave open to the historians. But the point is that this one theory put the world on its head. He was an English naturalist. Simply means he was a scientist. He was a biologist and a geologist. And in his book, The Origin of Species, Mr. Darwin proposed a theory of biological origins based on natural selection acting on random mutations. Here's his essential thesis. The apparent design that we see in nature is not the result of a creator. It is the result of time and nature acting on those mutations and heritable traits in the past genetic uh, life and acting on those that give the next life form adaptations that are favorable to continue to live. That is, the fittest species survive. You can see as much, by the by. When you look at the world, you know that an unfit animal and a fit animal, the one that's going to have the longer life, is the one that's fit. No question about it. No debate to be had. Fit animals give off their heritable traits to the next generation, and unfit animals die off. 
That, however, was not Mr. Darwin's point. Had that been Mr. Darwin's point, that would have not been a problem for Christians since God gave all biological organisms the ability to make more life and diverse life. But you see, the title of his thesis or the title of his book is not the origin of other species. It is the origin of all species. And so Darwin argued that there was a tree of life and that all life, including plants, bacteria, and animals, came from one common ancestor in the past. That's the famous tree of life. That there was a very simple single-celled organism that would give rise ultimately to all of the diversity that we see in life. Then the 1970s came along in the discovery of DNA and what we found was a genetic link, a genetic similarity that all life had. So that if you go to a human being and you go to a carrot, they both have DNA in them. DNA is four acids that are the building blocks of life. They are a code and they give off information to form amino acids. And those amino acids form three-dimensional proteins and they build more of that organism. And you can look at an ant and you can look at a carrot and you can look at a horse and a human being and a squirrel and all of them have DNA. And there are similarities. And so today, this has become the neo-Darwinist theory that all life, because of DNA, must have come from a single-celled organism. What do we do, though? Scripture tells us something slightly different. Actually, a lot different. Mr. Darwin said that we came from one organism, but God said that he made kinds. And he put them in classes. So that on the first kind, we have Plant life. And all plants ever make is what? More plants. And that we have fish and we have birds. And that all fish ever make is more fish and more birds. And then land animals. We have cows and thank God they make more cows so we can eat burgers. And thank God for spiders because they kill roaches. And thank God for human women because they kill spiders when their husbands are afraid of them. But notice that Scripture tells us this. You see, it is a completely different picture of the origin of life. But it's not just a different view, you see. Mr. Darwin is taking on the Bible, which we claim to be Inerrant, that is without error, infallible, that means without failure, incapable of error, and not only that, inspired by God. So that we have two books, two theses. The first book is God, or the first book is the Bible, and the author is God, and the second book is Darwin, uh, Origin of the Species, and the author is Darwin. And this is our competing people. Who are we going to go with? 
Now, I want to make something very clear. Christians don't disagree. The theory, the most fundamentalist Christians you can find, do not deny that certain types of birds, animals, human beings, and plants give rise to a diversity of other plants. They don't deny that plants give a diversity to other plants. For instance, we have a lovely Sooner dog. We don't know what species he is, so he's soon to be one species as another. He's a lovely dog. He's a mutt. If you follow his lineage all the way back, you're probably going to end up with something like an undomesticated wolf or a fox. All the way down to Fang, my lovely dog who sleeps in our bed. And eats the food off of my table when I get up. We go from all the way over here to here. But Christians, what we believe and has always, have always believed is that no matter how far you go, you just get dogs. There's no question that the German shepherd is a descendant of the wolf. And Mr. Darwin, even when he tried to prove his theory, went into populations of domesticated animals and he showed how breeders would take this cow and breed it with this cow so that their offspring would have an advantage for the next, the, in the next uh, 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 offspring. There would be an advantage, and usually for their own advantage. Longhorn cattle are, tend to be very, very strong for the arid climate of the southwest. And so longhorn cattle were bred and they were used. They were bred with other types of cattle to get a robust type of cattle. But no matter what, you only have cattle. As far as you go back. And so Mr. Darwin and the Bible are at odds. One view, the Christian view, is microevolution. Evolution, if you just use the word change over time, we believe in it. The Bible teaches it. But Darwin's story was bigger than that. Human beings came not only from a common ancestor, but without purpose. Why is this topic important? I want to read a couple things. Kenneth Miller says this. He's a theistic evolutionist, and we'll hear more about that in the coming weeks. He says this, Once Darwin's apple had fallen from the tree, there was no stopping the ways in which eager scholars would apply it to one problem after another. Isn't that exactly what we see today? Erasing human responsibility. Why? Because it's not that we're responsible for what we do, it's our genes that cause us to do what we do. After all, if none of us are upset when a shark eats a little fish or, or forcefully copulates with a female shark, if we're not upset with that, why not redefine rape in the human animals since we're common ancestors? Why not? Nobody gets upset when the lion, except for my wife, when the lion kills the gazelle. That's not murder. But why call it murder when humans do it? Why not call it genetic anomaly? Like a tide sweeping away old explanations of natural philosophy, 
Darwinian thought made scientists everywhere demand naturalistic, materialistic explanations for the way things are. Today, we tell people that their gender and what they think their gender is is really the result of their chromosomes. But the Bible tells us that human beings are created in God's image and that mind always, mind always trumps matter. That we may tell our bodies whether they have their own desires. No, we are not animals. We are God's image bearers. Evolution displaced the creator from his central position as the primary explanation for every aspect of the world. In so doing, Darwin lent intellectual aid and comfort to anti-religionists everywhere. This is one quote by the late William Provine. He was a professor at Cornell before he died of a brain tumor. He says this, it starts, this is on where Darwinism ultimately leads us, it starts by giving up an active deity. In other words, Darwinism takes the first verse of the Bible, which God knew was eternally important, and gets rid of it and says, in the beginning was matter. It starts by giving up an active deity. Then it gives up the hope that there's any life after death. Human beings die like dogs die. Do all go dogs go to heaven? If there's no God, no one does. When you give those two up, the rest of it follows fairly easily. You give up the hope that there's an imminent morality. And finally, there's no human free will. If you believe evolution, you can't hope for there being any free will. There's no hope whatsoever of there being any deep meaning in life. We live, we die, and we're absolutely gone when we die. That has drastic implications for how we live our lives. One man, who was an evolutionary biologist, shares his coming to faith. And I want to read this powerful story. This is Wayne Rossiter in his book, The Shadow of Oz. He says, I still remember the details of my conversion. It was a Friday night in late winter. I was in celebratory mode because I had just published a paper in the Journal of Molecular Evolution discussing the rapid adaptive evolution of rattlesnake venom enzymes. My wife and I settled in for a typical graduate student style evening, pizza, wine, and a movie. The movie was 310 to Yuma. After my wife had gone to bed, I stayed up watching TV on the couch. I began to feel ill and thought I'd eaten some bad food. As shivers and chills took over, I was paralyzed by a sudden fear and dread. For the first time, I truly comprehended the reality of death. I understood the complete and abrupt end of self-awareness. And many of the other implications of atheism set in. 
I realize that because I cannot experience the good or bad outcomes of my decisions beyond death, there was no rational or logical reason to care about any actions that might outlive me. On what rational grounds could I care about the state of the planet or even my own family after I'm gone? And what did I even mean by good or bad? I couldn't argue that any objective morality existed apart from our subjective experiences. Any moral laws that might objectively exist, whether or not anyone ascribes to them, would be beyond our grasp and we would have no objective or rational reason to obey them, even if they did exist. Nothing mattered. Much like William Provine outlines in his quote, says Rossiter, there could be no objective meaning, no purpose, no free will, or no morality. In this life. This is what Daniel Dennett's universal acid and Darwin's ideas applied that acid to human condition. Daniel Dennett called Darwinism a universal acid. He says, every time you want to ruin anything, you just drop a little bit of Darwinism on morality, and you see there is no morality once Darwin is through. If molecules led to cells, and cells to organs, and organs to bodies, then the molecules to man hypothesis was true. We were really just wet computers responding to external stimuli in mechanical and unconscious ways. No soul, no consciousness, just machines. I was completely and utterly devastated. Rossiter goes on to explain that his coming to Christ began with a deep understanding of what true Darwinism leads to. The Apostle Paul says this. He says, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more human hopes, what have I gained? He's speaking about his time in Ephesus where he was mistreated for following Christ. He lived a miserable life as an apostle, constantly being in prison, constantly being beaten, snake bitten, literally. Ultimately dying as an enemy of the state. And the apostle Paul asked a very real question. If God's word is not true and man's is, what is the point to life? Here's what he says. If the dead aren't raised, if God's word cannot be trusted, the God who made heavens and the earth, who made the first creation and who made the new creation in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if that's not true, if there is no hope of a real bodily resurrection... Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow 
we die. There are real consequences, ladies and gentlemen, to embracing a theory that undermines God's sovereign control over the heavens and the earth. The Apostle Paul knew as much. But he goes on to tell us, the dead are raised, really raised. And they had seen it and passed on a message, a simple message that is still being passed on this very morning, and it is this. God sent His Son into the world to die for sinners, that those who believe upon His name will be saved, and like He was raised bodily from the grave, so will all who believe in Him. That is the message we are proclaiming Every Sunday, that is the message of Easter. God has been raised. God's word is validated and vindicated. There is meaning to life. Are you glorifying God this morning with your life? Or are you living like a Darwin, a Darwinist would live? Do you live like your actions don't matter? And that when you die, you're just going to return to the dust? Scripture tells us that those who die apart from Christ do not simply annihilate, but that they have an ever-eternal experiential hell. A real and literal hell. And that those who believe in Christ have life. Ask yourself this morning, Will I go with Darwin or will I go with a risen Savior? Let's pray. Father, your word is mighty. This morning we proclaim your word. We know that our world proclaims the message of Darwin, that there is no life, there is no meaning. We are nothing but accidents, but your word tells us we are created in your image. Darwin tells us when we die, that's it. But your word tells us when we die, there is judgment. Your word tells us that our actions matter. Darwin tells us that they don't. And so, Lord, this morning we're going to go with you. For your word is truth. Lord, it is my prayer that those who've embraced a form of thinking that believes this world is futile and purposeless and empty, will believe your truth and will receive your Son, Jesus Christ, as their Savior. Holy Spirit, do the work that only you can do. Give new life to dead hearts. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.